صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Good morning, listeners. Thanks for joining us. Just a very quick special announcement, and then we'll get straight into the show. Now, listeners, very important announcement on Wednesday, the 22nd of July at 7.30pm. Free Palestine Melbourne will be hosting a free Zoom forum on Palestine in the era of annexation. Amazing guests. The forum will feature Dr. Hanan Ashrawi, a leading Palestinian feminist, peace activist, and member of the PLO Executive Committee, Dr. Yara Hawari, a Jerusalem-based senior policy fellow at Ashabaka, a Palestinian policy network devoted to educating and fostering public debate on Palestinian human rights and self-determination, and Mr. Meher Maghribi, a distinguished Palestinian-Australian journalist and former foreign editor of The Age. For more information or to register, go to Free Palestine Melbourne's Facebook page, that's Free Palestine Melbourne, or their website, fpmelbourne.org, fpmelbourne.org. Free Palestine Melbourne is a community organisation of activists who have come together to coordinate solidarity actions for a free Palestine. You'd be crazy to miss this one. Tuesday the 22nd of July at 7.30pm, go to the Free Palestine Melbourne's Facebook page. Join me, I'll be watching. It's sure to be great. Good morning, Rob. How are you? Good morning, Nasa. I'm very well. Very well indeed. How are you? I'm rocking and rolling, mate. We're another, another six weeks of lockdown. Not much we can do about that, but... We have a fantastic show today. We have a fantastic show and a very exciting uh, show because we've got one of our favourite palos from Sydney, our friendly neighbourhood palo, Fahad. How are you, Fahad? I'm well. How are you? Mate, fantastic. Thanks so much for joining us and uh, sharing your story with our listeners. My pleasure. Now, Fahad, one question we always ask every one of our guests is their Palestine story. How did you come to Australia? So my, um, my grandparents were teenagers in 1948 so they fled from palestine when they were quite young and they fled into jordan um and it wasn't it wasn't until sometime later i believe the 60s when my my grandfather eventually um became part of the jordanian army um and at some point he was seconded to bahrain to um help set up the military there so my parents actually met in Bahrain and um, at some point they decided to migrate to Australia. So they moved into Sydney's West and the rest is essentially history. Um, my sort of understanding of who I am as a Palestinian um, didn't really come about until much later in my life um, because my, my family um, – so my mum was born in Jordan, for instance, and, you know, uh, for much of her um, – adolescence she grew up in Bahrain um, there seems to be this weird sort of stigma about acknowledging yourself as being Palestinian in the Arab world and so I think my mum's family in particular tried to assimilate quite strongly and 
as a consequence, I didn't really get to engage in, you know, that kind of history and background um, until I was 18 or 19. And so it's been a, it's been a journey and it's um, coming, it's been coming to me slowly. um, But it's really important to me to be able to assert that this is who I am, because if I don't, then well, really at the end of the day, um, you know, the project of sort of ethnic cleansing has worked. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, Palestine lives within each of us. And when we don't identify as Palestinian, Zionism actually wins. Yeah. I was just going to say, you're saying from the outward, you had to keep being Palestinian to yourself a little bit. Being Palestinian in the family home, was it a Palestinian home? Did you hear about everything? Were you taught about Palestine? No, I didn't. Um, and so even th- in the house? Even in the house. And I think that there was a lot of trauma associated with it. There was some kind of idea that, well, you know, Palestine is in the past. We're, ne- we're never getting it back. Things will never get, go back to the way that they were. Um, mm. So it's too painful to talk about. Um, so that was always a sort of topic of discussion that, you know, I couldn't really encourage yeah. some of my older family members to engage with. But, um, you know, I think that it's kind of odd because even though that's the case, I've been able to find like mementos and um, sort of maybe books and stories that um, some of my family members have that um, they sort of treasure, um, even though they weren't, even though they won't talk about it, it seems to still be something that's very close to them. So just, just on a side note, I, um, when I traveled, I spoke to a lot of elderly Palestinians and most of them didn't want to talk about it because it was too hard. I only had one group of older Palestinians that would talk about it and they only spoke about their childhood. Once they hit about over 10 or 11 years old, they didn't want to talk about it. So it's a horrible scenario that uh you know i mean the voices need to be heard don't they Fahad, what's your earliest memory of you being palestinian when did you first go i'm palestinian well um, look <laughs> i don't know because i i clearly knew i was palestinian um growing up so i i don't know where that sort of um awareness of being palestinian started so I, I mean, it was something I knew growing up, as I said, but the moment that it really hit me as like a almost political statement was in uh, 2012, at the end of 2012, when Palestine had been granted non-member observer status at the United Nations. Um, I remember on that very day, someone at my university, at the University of Sydney, had put up a Palestinian flag on the sort of main avenue on campus. And I walked I walk past that having just sort of seen the news. And it was a really powerful statement because, you know, for me and my family, Palestine was always a private affair. It was always um, personal trauma. Um, and so to have heard that news and then to have seen sort of a manifestation of Palestinian identity, like in front of me in, I guess, the place I'd least expect made me think, wow, like, this is, this, is, this is real, this is happening, there's a movement. Um, and I think that's the point at which I began to really uh, sink my teeth into Palestinian activism. I suppose yeah. that was the first time you'd ever seen it externally. Yeah, like, I mean, I hadn't been really exposed to Palestinian activism prior to that. Um, 
even as an undergrad? No, but this is my first year of uni. Oh, oh that was your first. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I forget that you're you're much younger than me. Sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> so from there, so that that's your first exposure. I mean, you, I know you because you've been very active and done some fantastic stuff. Take us on on your activism journey. So, I guess I started off at the. Um, I started off as the president of Students for Justice in Palestine at my university in my second year of my undergrad, um, and that continued for a number of years. At one point, I helped to establish a advocacy group within the Australian Labor Party called Labor for Palestine, and you know, ever since then, I've been sort of involved in Palestinian activism in a few different areas, but you know also with sort of a focus on the things that matter to me. For example, I'm a young gay man and I think it's important that the movement um, generally speaking embraces diversity. It embraces, you know, the power of women, for example, it embraces LGBT identities. Um, And so one of the other sort of campaigns I've been really involved with has been the marriage equality campaign in Australia, where I, I led a campaign group called Muslims for Marriage Equality. And those are to me important because to me, I can't separate out my identity as a Palestinian or as a gay man or as whatever else. To me, it's one cohesive whole. Yeah. One of the, you know, the realities of what the Israelis have done is, you know, pinkwash their movement. Did you experience any of that? All the time. Um, so pinkwashing is something I see quite frequently. And one of the things that I'm told is... Let's, let's define pinkwashing first. Yeah, you and let's I know let's define pinkwashing. So pinkwashing is sort of uh, the cynical attempt to portray Israel as a haven of gay rights and to pr- portray Palestinians as um, somehow homophobic or essentially homophobic in order to distract attention away from Israel's human rights abuses. So um, Israel will take things like LGBT issues and use them as a marketing campaign to serve as a smokescreen for the occupation. And that can have severe consequences when we think about, you know, if you think about the occupation, um, very often people will say, how can you, how can you be anti-Israeli when they're the only state in the Middle East that is pro-gay? And that's a sort of pinkwashing propaganda because I mean, whether or not that's the case, and I don't think that's, that is the case. Um, the fact that they may or may not be pro-LGBT does not give them a free pass to oppress the Palestinians. No. So it's irrelevant. It's completely it, irrelevant. It's completely it? irrelevant. Um, and more importantly, it really prevents any kind of movement in terms of our rights as you know queers in Palestine or in the Middle East because we cannot count on solidarity from communities all around the world because they are made to believe that we are essentially homophobic, even mm-hmm. though, you know, I'm a gay Palestinian and there's, there's plenty of gay plenty. Palestinians, yeah, even, in, <laughs> even in Palestine, yeah, even yeah. In everywhere in the Middle East. Um, and they've got some remarkable organizations doing some really good stuff over there. Um, you know, one thing um, I was uh, quite happy to see recently was um, in Elias Suleiman's um, most recent film, mm. uh, It Must Be Heaven. In so I call that movie. It's, it's a great movie, but um, in the final scene, there's a uh, Ilya kind of returns to Palestine after his sort of um, trip abroad, and he goes into a a nightclub, and 
it's what he sees is you know young Arabs sort of dancing and having a good time, um, and it's a really powerful moment in the background of the film. But um, one of the things that I noticed was that he had included a gay couple embracing in this final scene, which to me was very powerful because it was a very bold statement about who we are and what the future is for Palestine and the fact that young Palestinians are, you know, in themselves diverse. And um, yeah, that to me, that was quite extraordinary. Now, last year, the ALP moved a motion to recognize Palestine the next time they're in government. From your work in the Labor Party, can you take us through the challenges you had from then to where we've ended up as a Labor Party? So the main opposition to the um, recognised Palestine campaign was always that to say that the Labor Party or any Australian government would would recognise Palestine would be to take a unilateral decision that would upend the peace process. Um, Our position, our response was always that that was complete nonsense because what Israel had been doing on a day-to-day basis, the expansion of the settlement project, for instance, was actually the only unilateral decision being pursued. Um, And now with this annexation plan, it's clearer than ever. Mm -hmm. But at the time we were told, well, no, no, we can't, we can't recognize Palestine. Um, you know, it, we, we, we need to let the peace, uh, peace process just play out and see where that takes us. Um, that's we, so successful. Well, that's, that's the thing. I mean, we know that the peace process hasn't been successful um, and we know why that is. And I mean, going back even to 1993, Edward Said was writing about why Oslo would be a failure. Um, and so many of his words at the time are quite applicable to the peace process now. Um, in the sense that it doesn't exist and it is designed to be biased against the Palestinians. So the Labour Party is interesting because there's a great deal of people within the party who are supportive of Palestine. I would say that the majority of the rank and file are supportive of Palestine. Um, There's this odd disconnect the further you go up in the ranks of the party. And I would suggest that... um, at a certain point, to it stops becoming a political sort of notion in the sense that um, I don't think there's a reason for Australian politicians to have the views on Israel and Palestine that they do. I don't think that it's politically intelligent. I think that it is um, certainly not viable as an electoral strategy. Um, so, I mean, we need to ask, why would they be pro-Israel to the detriment of both electoral viability and the process of justice. Um, is it fear? I, so is it, is it fear <laughs> that the wrath of the pro-Israel lobby or group, whatever you want to talk to them, are so organised that they can hit them so hard with negativity and threats that they just say, you know what, I don't want a part of this. I'm just going to say it's pro-Israel or I'm neutral. Well, that might be part of it. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure I would know. I think one of the interesting clues is the treatment of um, Jeremy Corbyn. Um, And even we've seen um, just in the recent US Democratic primary, um, some of the same accusations were made against Bernie Sanders, who himself is Jewish, that he was anti-Semitic for being anti-Israel. 
I mean, to, to, to level that accusation against a, a Jewish person is extraordinary in my view. Um, but also, I mean, this sort of cynical allegation is nothing new, but I don't think that it's the only thing that is contributing to the positions of people in power. I think mm-hmm. there's uh, a number of other factors. For example, um, they are subject to a very aggressive form of lobbying, um, offers of junket trips, um, you know, dinners, wine and dine sort of events, um, where they are made to feel, you know, important um, and made to feel like the world is their oyster and they've been yeah. very well looked after. So in a sense, almost a quid pro quo. Um, I think that it's noxious and I think that more people ought to stand up to it. But um, I think that the reason they don't, or for those who know that it's wrong, the reason that they don't is because of that fear. Um, because, I mean, the moment you say something out of line or something a little bit, controversial you are sticking your neck out and you need to have amassed quite a lot of political capital in order to get away with doing that and not everybody has that bob carr for example who um has been a very good friend to the palestinian cause does have that kind of political capital but many other politicians do not and by and this is coming from him being pro-israel at the start too so yes great turnaround well he, he always tells a story about how he was the founder of um Friends of Israel. Uh, Friends of Israel and um, has come around to it. But, I mean, I think that's certainly very respectable. Um, And I would encourage everyone who's listening to this who might be in the Labour Party to sort of um, read his writings and his views on this matter um, and try to follow along. Um, well, we're happy for Liberal Party members and communists and anybody to read his memories <laughs> and come around. <laughs> you don't have to just be on Team Red. We know what Palestine should look like as Palestinians. You know, an egalitarian, equal society, democracy, a separation of church and state. Have you had a chance to read the Peter Beinart article? Um, yes, briefly this morning I have. Yeah. Do you want to comment on this sort of evolution of you know, Zionist, liberal Zionist, now humanitarian. I mean, increasingly we're seeing it, yeah? And it's, you know, I've got this theory. I say, you know, the the Old Testament, the old Judaism that, you know, was all about justice and and fair. How can, under, with an understanding of Judaism that that's what it's about, how do you, how can you reconcile as an Australian Jew or an American Jew having a spare country? And then having that spare country and understanding that country, I was built on the misery, dispossession, death, etc., of another people, over and above which it's maintained for you as a spare country on that misery and the exclusion of refugees going home, etc., etc., etc. And you've got somebody like Peter Barnard, who's, you know, establishment Zionist, establishment now liberal Zionist, has come out and said a Jewish case for equality in Israel, Palestine, and, and talks about, you know, this post-Israel, Pazrel, or Istine, or whatever it's going to be called tomorrow. Um, have you encountered that comment to the article and what's been your experience around, you know, liberal Zionists? Well, Peter Beinart isn't the first person to have had a change of heart, and I don't think he will be the last. But, I mean, one of my best friends is a, 
a Jewish person who would describe themselves as a Zionist. And when we talk about why that is the case, he would say things like, well, you know, historically the position of the Jewish people has been, you know, one in which they have been the victims of pogroms, threats, you know, abuse, um, genocide. And to him, and I'm sure to many other people who hold this view, um, having a state that they can define themselves by where they can always feel like they can find shelter in is a very important sort of a very, it's very um, reassuring. It's a, it's a, you gain a sense of security from that, um, which is fair enough. But then the problem is that it's coming at the expense of the people who you and I live there. Yes. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, I understand, or I'd, I'd like to believe that I'm empathetic to many of the things that um, so-called liberal Zionists say. Um, but at the same time, I think it's important for them to maybe be empathetic to what we have to say. And I don't necessarily think that always goes very well. Um, I think it takes a certain kind of person to be able to listen to both sides of an argument with real good faith. Um, in terms of what Peter Beinart's suggesting, um, you know, like this is interesting because in a way this is what many Palestinians have been saying for a number of years. Um, and the only reason it's printed on a, you know, a masthead publication is because it's not coming from a Palestinian. Of course. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I applaud him for, you know, his change in view, but at the same time, I think it's really important that if he does have that view, he would have the courage to not just put it into an article, but go into the communities that he's in and to, to really advocate for something. Because I really do find one of the tragedies of this whole situation is that um, in many ways, the soul of the Jewish community and the Jewish people is tarnished by what's going on. Um, and it's really upsetting, I think. And a lot of, a lot of my Jewish friends are upset by the fact that Israel would try to claim all Jews under their sort of mm. dominion when it doesn't help the reputation. No, of all Jews when, when, when he says that, so, no. you know, so I mean, and because so many Jews uh, support, uh, support Palestinian rights as we support Jewish rights. We had a, um, a joint statement with the Australian Jewish Democratic Society and the Australia Palestine Advocacy Network talking about the weaponization of anti-Semitism. One of the things that came out of that, you know, is anti-Semites are Islamophobic, they're homophobic, they hate all of us equally. Now, what they might try and do is separate one of us from the pack to make us, any one of those groups, feel like they might be above the others. But we understand the intersectionality of our struggles is, is together united. We're, we're, we're stronger than that hate. Yeah, I really do think that Islamophobia and anti-Semitism are two sides of the same coin. Absolutely. Um, and if, if you don't stand against both of them, you're not really standing against either of them. No, you can't um, stand against one, not the other. It's absolutely. I mean, I, I mean, my view is that anti-Semitism historically has played a role in 
it has historically played much of the same role that Islamophobia does today, which is scapegoating a minority population uh, to for all the various ills of society. Um, and so I think Islamophobia does play that role in, in contemporary society. And so I'm concerned, and I think everybody should be concerned by that kind of dynamic. And we should learn from Jewish history and Jewish struggle against oppression where we can. Um, I think that we have a, a lot of shared history here. Now, one of, the, one of our great loves for justice, for fighting for the Palestinians, Fahad, is the boycott, divestment and sanctions campaign. I know you've done a bit of work around that. Why don't you tell our listeners about why it's so important and how our listeners can support the movement? Just a very, very quick overview of what it is, for those that don't know. Yeah, so the boycott, divestment and sanctions campaign, also called the BDS campaign, is a movement that seeks to bring pressure upon Israel and international actors that are complicit in the occupation um, to, first of all, end the occupation, uh, to bring down the apartheid wall. And it seeks to do this by um, supporting consumer boycotts, for example, if there's a company profiting off the occupation in some way, whether that's an Israeli company or whether that's an international company operating in the settlements, um, we would boycott that product. Um, divestment, meaning that we would encourage corporations to pull out their money from companies that do that kind of business and sanctions, which are sort of asking governments around the world to formally sanction Israel. Um, and the BDS campaign is really modeled off a very similar boycott campaign that was leveled against apartheid era South Africa. Um, and basically we believe that this is a really justified tactic in the circumstances because it's non-violent. It's a form of direct action. Um, one of the frequent critics of Palestinian activism is that, uh, you know, it's too violent and they're always throwing rocks and yada, yada, yada. Um, so why not do something that is completely non-violent, completely peaceful and, you know, has been shown historically to have some really good results. Um, for those of you who are listening at home, if you want to support in any way, I'd encourage you to check out um, the BDS website, which is bdsmovement.com, I believe. And um, you, you'll be able to find a list of companies that you can personally boycott. I'd also recommend writing to your local member of parliament, encouraging them to um, investigate sanctions against Israel, particularly if it proceeds with plans for annexation. Um, and, you know, if you're a shareholder in a business or, you know, uh, if you have any kind of investments um, or community groups that do invest in something, um, it's a really good idea to encourage them to move investments away from organizations that are complicit in human rights abuses. In Palestine, absolutely. Fahad, it's been fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. Hopefully you can join us again soon. Yeah, thank you for having me. You can be our special correspondent in New South Wales. And Would love to be. <laughs> we, we only pay him Monopoly money, so um, <laughs> you just need to find a vendor that will accept it. We'll give you thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> house on Mayfair, fantastic. Yeah. Thanks so much, Fahad. Thank you. Take care. Bye. I'm sure you'll agree, listeners, that Fahad was fantastic and look forward to hearing from him again soon. Now, listeners, very important announcement on Wednesday, the 22nd of July at 7.30 p.m., 
Free Palestine Melbourne will be hosting a free Zoom forum on Palestine in the era of annexation. Amazing guests. The forum will feature Dr. Hanan Ashrawi, a leading Palestinian feminist, peace activist, and member of the PLO Executive Committee, Dr. Yara Hawari, a Jerusalem-based senior policy fellow at Ashabaka, a Palestinian policy network devoted to educating and fostering public debate on Palestinian human rights and self-determination, and Mr. Meher Maghribi, a distinguished Palestinian-Australian journalist and former foreign editor of The Age. For more information or to register, go to Free Palestine Melbourne's Facebook page, that's Free Palestine Melbourne, or their website, fpmelbourne.org, fpmelbourne.org. Free Palestine Melbourne is a community organisation of activists who've come together to coordinate solidarity actions for a free Palestine. You'd be crazy to miss this one. Tuesday the 22nd of July at 7.30pm, go to the Free Palestine Melbourne's Facebook page. Join me, I'll be watching. It's sure to be great. We've come to the end of another show. Thanks for listening and thanks for being loyal listeners. Don't forget to tell your friends to listen to the show, 9.30 in the morning, 8.55, or share the podcast. Really importantly, make sure you register to that fantastic event put on by Free Palestine Melbourne, 22nd of July at 7.30pm, fpmelbourne.org, or the Palestine Melbourne Facebook page, the Free Palestine Melbourne Facebook page. I do hope you join me Wednesday the 22nd of July at Free Palestine Melbourne's Zoom event, Palestine in the Era of Annexation. Such a very important event and with some fabulous Palestinians, Hanan, Meher and Yara. I'm sure you won't be disappointed. So go to fpmelbourne.org or Free Palestine Melbourne's Facebook page. Take care. Join us next week. Look after yourselves and Free Palestine.